0: To Hebrews chapter six, excuse me, chapter five, we'll be going into chapter six as well. But starting from verse 11 and going to verse 12 of chapter six, I will be reading and preaching for you this day. Hear now the very word of God. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained and by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ And go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead from dead works or of faith toward God or of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. For this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this admonishing encouragement, this provocation and warning and this calling of assurance of hope in the promises of God. We pray that we would be rightly convicted where needed, and we would be encouraged and comforted also as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This particular passage today is a bit of a An interruption of himself as he has been teaching about the greatness of Jesus Christ, particularly now as he is highlighting Jesus' role as the great high priest. He's now interrupting himself to admonish the hearers. And it's an interesting admonishment. And it's not to be removed. It's not like you turn off, like, okay, we're taking a pause. Let's turn off the understanding of the great high priest but it is to provoke us to go further in understanding what he's trying to teach and to instruct with us with understanding the greatness of Jesus Christ in his role of the great high priest. So we're to continue to carry these same themes for us. And in fact, it is a compliment to the very encouragement that he's already given us. If you remember that we, as we consider Jesus the great high priest, we are to strive to enter into his rest, And we can even look at it now, striving to enter into his promises, to strive to enter into the assurance of hope. We are to hold fast our confession. We are to continue to hold fast to the truth, but we want to draw near to go further in our understanding of this one who is our great high priest and not to remain at a place of immaturity, not to remain at a place of childishness, but to grow further Though we are called to come to him with childlike faith, we are called to mature. And it should be a reminder to us that God's work in us is to bring us about to a place of perfection. Now most of us, when we think about that perfection, we think, well, when we die, then we'll be poof, (laughs) we'll be perfect. But that work is being done now. The intention of what happened on the cross and the resurrection from the dead is to be bringing you to perfection now. Not that you will necessarily accomplish perfection now, but that work is being done now. We are in the place of the already, but not yet. It's not that we're on pause. It's not like, okay, we're just waiting to die until then that work gets completed. Now, granted, for some people, they get to check out sooner than other people. And Jesus gave us a really simple parable for us to understand the parable of the workers, for us not to get upset about that, that some people will be working all day long, and they receive the same reward as those who show up in the last minute and enter into that reward. And it's not up to us. He admonishes those For those who complain, like, hey, wait a minute, that person's getting the same end result for less involvement in the field. It's not up to us to make that calling. We should be thankful that we are a part of the calling and that we receive the great benefit of his eternal promise, whether we have to stay here until we're old and crusty or whether we get to check out sooner than later. Doesn't really matter. In the end, we will end up with one another before the Lord before the triune God. So remember those particular callings as we go into this particular passage. And this is a tough passage, but I have to admit that I read you know weeks ago into this portion of the passage and I thought, man, I do not want to go here. Maybe I can schedule it and connive in some kind of way where Maharus has to preach this particular passage <laughs> so that I can check out and then he can be the bad guy because it's an obvious place where the writer of the Hebrews is stopping and then he criticizes people for being sluggish and dull of hearing. And <laughs> they like, wake up, people. Y'all are asleep. And it's like, as much as I sometimes may want to say that on some weekends when I can tell people are more tired than others, it's not a fun place to be in where you have to do that. But as I d- dug deeper into this particular passage in light of the whole book of Hebrews, I find this passage to be tremendously encouraging for us to be a good kind of admonishment. That, yes, it is a pause from this particular teaching of the high priest, but in the God's providence, it takes a moment for us to stop. And you have to think about it for a while. When we get into thinking about Melchizedek, our mind's like, well, what's going on with Melchizedek? Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And you're trying to understand that. You know, We're very easily to be distracted like, What does this all mean, this Melchizedek guy? We don't even know hardly anything about him. His name is mentioned more here in this book than we have in the Old Testament. And so how are we supposed to understand this? And it can push our minds to to a place where we're like, you know what, I just want to give up. This doesn't make any sense to me. Here we're getting this provocation that is a weighty one, but it is to encourage us to keep going, to wake up, to latch on to this particular teaching Because there is great assurance and great promise that comes from this particular doctrine. You have to admit that sometimes the best provocation is a weighty one that has a bit of a punch to it. I know that in my um, history of being an elder, that one of the first times I went to a presbytery meeting, Um, it was in Western Carolina Presbytery, and I watched the examination of new candidates for ministry. It was tremendously admonishing. It was, it was convicting to see these men being questioned about the scriptures and realize how little I knew and how, how I felt almost like, who, why am I here? Should I even be an elder? Some of these things are just the basics of the scriptures, the basic understanding of our salvation. And here I am like scrambling to try to know how would I answer those particular questions given to these candidates? But I have to admit that those particular times when I've gone and I've observed those candidates being examined, I was provoked to want to go deeper in the Word. That it was convicting, but it had weight to it that actually produced a fruit. It caused me to go deeper into the Word. I know I've told some of you about the group that I used to be a part of with Coal Biters, where we would go and we would discuss culture and the Bible and books and all kinds of different things, and we would try to center it in the scriptures and center it in Jesus Christ, and I would leave often sometimes wondering if I spoke too boldly about something I didn't know about, but I would always have to go back and dig into the Word to, to make sure it either was right or be ready to go back the next week and say, sorry, I spoke too soon. That was not correct. The scriptures actually say this. That kind of admonishment and encouragement is rich. And we don't want to turn off our dull ears in this moment and miss out on this great riches of his admonishment here to us when he is coming in on us, but then he's going to end with a, a lighter encouragement. And it almost seems like he's backtracking or even contradicting himself with how he is one minute calling us immature children and then the next minute encouraging us That it is different for us. And it almost seems like he's speaking out of two sides of his mouth. And I want to encourage you that he's not doing that. That he is speaking to us and we are to be listening all the way through this. He is going to say much more about Melchizedek. And we need to hear what he is saying now so that we can be ready to actually enjoy and look forward to and to work at being able to understand God's word even more. So here in chapter 5 and verse 11, it says about this, we have much to say about what he's talking about with Jesus being the great high priest. And it is hard to explain, but it's not so much that it's hard to explain just because it's very mysterious and that it's really weighty in of itself. The primary reason why it's hard to explain is because you have become dull of hearing. Now, th- this word dull here is nothros, and it is the bookends of this particular section of passage that goes into chapter 6, because he will end when he's talking of us, about us not remaining sluggish, but that we become imitators. It's the exact same word. For some reason in this particular translation that they decided to use dull and then they decided to use sluggish. But it's the same word being used and it's kind of this bookend admonishment for us that we do not remain in this state of dullness. And if you go look up what Northros means and when it's used in different places, it's sluggish, dull, lazy, sloth, slow, indolent stubborn, weak, unmotivated. It's kind of a nice way to start a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're a bunch of sluggish, lazy, dull, slothful, slow, indolent, stubborn, weak, and unmotivated people. And I think that if we listen to this and we take a moment, we go, yeah. And I don't think it's hard for us to understand that, especially in our particular church culture today, that this is going to land on us pretty well, as it may have for the Hebrews. In fact, if we compared ourselves to the Christian Hebrews at that time, we may find ourselves that this is more fitting for us. It says here that by now, you should be teachers. But you still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now let's think about what's being said here. It's saying that you still need people to teach you the basics. It's not saying that the basics are bad. It's saying that you're still at a place where that's something that you still need. That you're not quite ready for this. You see the same admonishment. This is another reason why we think this may be Paul speaking here, because he does the same thing when he's talking to the Corinthians, saying, I can't give you anything right now other than milk. You're not ready for it. You're having to still stay in first grade. That you ought to be at a place now, based upon what you've been given, what you've been taught, and what you've seen the Lord do, you should be at a place that you should be a teacher. But right now, you're still needing the basics. And I think about this as a pastor. I think right now, and I can sense this in our culture, that people, they just want the basics of grace. Which is fine. The grace is really a significant component of who we are in Christ. But if you go beyond that, they just kind of go, <laughs> you know, we're not here anymore. I just want to be reminded that it's all going to be okay and that God accepts me for who I am, even though I may be a lazy, sluggish, slothful, indolent, weak, unmotivated Christian. Just remind me that I'm, it's all okay. Well, God's word doesn't put us in that place where he wants us to be reminded that we can just be a lazy, sluggish bum. He wants us to be admonished here that we are to be encouraged to go further here. When we think about the five pillars of what the Chinese church calls to be the signs of who, who the church is, if you remember, I've talked about this for the past probably three or four years When I, after reading Francis Chan's, one of his books. He says that the, the, the pastors in the Chinese church, they recognize five pillars of what their primary objective is as a church. One, to be devoted. Y'all remember these? Y'all remember me talking about the five, five pillars? One is to be devoted to the word of God, which should be pretty obvious. Two, to be devoted to prayer. Another is to expect miracles. And another is to embrace suffering. Does anybody remember what the fifth one was? Devotion to the word of God, devotion to prayer, expect miracles, embrace suffering. Anybody remember the fifth one? I'm giving you a hint cuz I'm putting it in the context of where I'm at in my sermon. It is to be active in making disciples by sharing the gospel and the teachings of Jesus Christ. To be active in making disciples. That our, as a church, that our calling, it's all of our calling, Though we have different degrees and different offices, all of our callings are to be co-disciples and to be making disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all pastors or we're all elders or we're all deacons or we're all Sunday school teachers or we're all whatever or we're leading a Bible study, but that we are all to be active, that is to be a Christian in the church, we are all called to be making disciples, and there's different ways to be doing that. But we should be teaching one another God's word. We should be involved in some kind of teaching through how we are encouraging discipleship. We don't all have the same giftings of teaching. We aren't all maybe identified as being a teacher. The word here in this particular word is the same as rabbi. We're not all rabbis or we're not all in the same place of being a, a leader. But we are all called to be making disciples in some way, which is basically teaching the students of God about the wonders of God. It says here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you should be about this teaching. This should be what you're doing, but you're still in first grade. You're still needing the basics to be taught to you. You're still needing to be reminded of the basics. And I know that pastors are challenged with that, that a lot of their sermons have to keep going back to the basics. In some respects, that's all that people want to hear, but in many respects, that's all that we are in our maturity. We are not as mature of a church as we should be. I'm talking generally and likely also specifically for us. And for me as your pastor, we're not where we should be. After all the time that I have had as being a Christian, after all the teaching that we have, when we have all of these podcasts, all of these books, I, I, stand there every, I sit there every Sunday morning when I'm finishing up my notes, and I look over at my, my desk. The next one is I have these stacks of books. I'm like, I've only read maybe three of those, <laughs> you know? It's like we have so many riches of understanding but so very little motivation to actually be in that motivation of doing what's called for us. It says that we should be at a place now where we're beyond the milk and we are in solid food, but we're stuck on milk. Now You may have noticed the, my, the, the title for my sermon today was Milk Toast Christians. You might think, well, that's kind of an interesting spelling of milk toast. Has anybody ever used that terminology that you're being milk toast about anything? Probably like I don't really know what you're talking about. I, for some reason, I remember me and my little brother. My little brother, <clears throat> uh, which is now he's in his 40s now, but he <laughs> remember when he was a kid. Some somehow or another he came across the word milk toast, and he thought it was so funny. I remember him running around the house, going milk toast, milk toast, and then laughing over and over again. How how funny of a of a word that is. But it it is a, it's an old word, and it's supposed to. It's actually based upon a type of food. Has anybody eaten milk toast? Anybody, y'all, like a favorite breakfast meal is milk toast? I mean, it seems soggy, right? It's basically a toast that's in this kind of creamy milk. Um, it's usually a warm milk and it's usually a sweet. It's kind of like a, maybe a wet pastry is a better way to put it. And, and people actually liked it at one time. And, and I don't know if people still eat it like that today. I actually Googled and there are recipes for a variety of different types of milk toast out there. But where it got its Criticism, where the word became a critical word, was in 1924. There was this comic book character by H. T. Webster named Casper Milktoast, and of course, <laughs> that's where the name came from. And he kind of coined this idea that if you were Milktoast, you were this kind of weak, timid person. It says that <clears throat> that there was a, there was actually a, a, a strip called The Timid Soul. And he would be timid. He would, he would always, when he read signs, it was always this very overly literal reading of signs. He never wanted to let his mind go further into a broader understanding of the signs. He had a refusal to engage anyone in discussions that would turn into controversy. And so he was just, he was this weak and kind of unmotivated person. It, I remember seeing this one comic strip where he's waiting on somebody to pick him up and he's been waiting for like three hours and he's like, he's finally getting ready to get mad that the guy's late. It took him three hours to come pick him up. He's just kind of a lump on a log kind of person. And even Time Magazine eventually in 1945 made note of him and he it, it became very popular as being someone who was, maybe today would be considered to be a snowflake. You know, you're used to that term, right? Snowflake. Someone who's just weak and maybe afraid and that lacking of timidity. Well, here I am going to use the word milk in the milk toast sense of showing this criticism. The, the Christians that are being highlighted here, they're just stuck. They're just stuck in this particular place where they have to be just reminded of the basics. They haven't been able to go further on from that, but we are called, we are being reminded to go further here that we need to not let this teaching about the order of Melchizedek and Jesus being a great high priest cause us to be lulled into sleep, but that we would long for the solid food that is for the mature, that, our, that we would have these powers of discernment that are trained by constant practice. Look at all those words there, this, this discernment to be trained and have constant practice. This is discipleship. This is discipline that makes disciples this is the calling of discipleship is that we are working to go further in the solid food and this solid food is a word that some people today particularly don't like to utilize and it's called heavier doctrine you know it, it, we're seeing this contrast that here even the writer says that you're stuck on these elementary doctrines not bad doctrines not false doctrines which are at this elementary state and you're content to be there In fact, I would say in our culture today, the way that our culture is in the church is that it's actually considered to be noble, to be left at a place of elementary doctrines. You hear this when you hear Christians talking to other Christians that go to different churches. It's like, well, you know, none of that stuff really matters. It all just matters in the end is that we all just worship Jesus Christ. You know, there's a truth to that. But it's like, we're all just fine just being... just. Whatever, whatever your definition of Jesus Christ is, that's fine too. As long as it's Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's kind of what we're left with. That we're not going any further and any beyond that. No, some of these things really do matter. In fact, we're being admonished here in the Word that we should be going further than that. That these distinctions are important. They're not foundational. These secondary distinctives are not necessarily foundational. We know what the foundational things are. and We're getting ready to be reminded of that. But that we are called to keep going not to be left stuck. We are called to be disciples, so therefore we should be disciplined. And then in that discipline, we should be able, in this day and age particularly, to be able to discern between right and wrong beyond then just the basics. And if you think about it, where is our culture right now? We have a tremendously difficult time, starting from the church, of understanding what is right and wrong. I mean, it's gotten out of control, wouldn't you say? that we are in an out-of-control state, The things that we would not have imagined that people in society would have accepted, we are embracing and now it's become a virtue to embrace evil and to celebrate it. And everyone else is getting crushed in that particular path. And celebrating of evil is going to bring nothing but death and destruction. Moving on in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation. Let me stop there. Because it can be confusing when we think that. When we think about leaving, we think of abandoning. And we think about separating from. He's not saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ as in abandon it. All right? I'm not going to ask you who all think the same way. When When I read that, my mind wants to think of Pushing it sideways or leaving on in another direction. What it's actually saying is that we leave, if you can think of it, we're going upward. All right? Because he's using the word foundation. It says, not laying again a foundation. So we understand that these are foundational elementary doctrines and principles that are still under us. You think about elementary school. Yes, This is going to be a theme that I'm going to stick with for a little while here. You need to ask yourself, where are you at in your school? You know, as homeschoolers it's always a difficult thing for my kids to be able to answer what grade you're in. You know, it's like, I don't know. I think my mom told me I was maybe in third or fourth. (laughs) I don't really know. Because it's a thing that people are used to in this particular school culture that we're in. Where are you at? But the question should be is, what kind of disciple are you? Where are you in this particular place? I mean, Quoting Paul from when he was admonishing the Corinthians, it says, But brothers, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Basically because of your fruit of being full of jealousy and strife. And here they were these factions of who they were with. And again, there obviously he says that you are infants in Christ and there's good teaching still being taught because you're still getting milk. But you can't go any further than that because you're stuck in this place where you're having to be reminded of the basics. So you're still in school... But you're still more like flesh. You're still in the very beginning stage. So where are you? Are you still an elementary school disciple? Are you still stuck with the only things that you can be involved in or think about and focus on is just the elementary doctrines? And I think one reason why we are in this particular state of the church is that this particular passage, most people get freaked out about this passage more about whether or not a backslider can repent. Because that's, that's where the focus is. But the focus is not so much for us to be dwelling on whether a backslider can repent. It's whether a Christian should be growing and whether you are growing. It's actually a more encouraging passage. Most people are very daunted. It's like, have I sinned long enough and have I been backslidden and far enough away from God that I've lost my chance to be able to repent And still be his. And that's not the primary focus. There is a warning here. There is an admonition and a warning here that's very similar to that. But the focus of this is to propel you not to be wondering whether or not you can repent at the last minute in your sin and still get to heaven. It's saying, are you growing? Are you going further? And with that admonishment still being there, it's to actually encourage you to press on and to grow further to leave the elementary doctrines by leaving elementary school, if you can think of it that way. It's time for you to graduate to the next place, on to maturity. Now, when you move on, if you're in elementary school or if you were in homeschool first grade, do you abandon all the basics of your reading? Say, okay, I'm just going to abandon the rules of English grammar. No. You don't abandon them. You're going to need those. You're going to need it. You know, like when you're doing math, do you like, you know what? One plus one no longer equals two. We're going to abandon that idea. And we're going to try to do algebra and geometry and maybe calculus. We're going to abandon all those basics. No, they're the foundation. And that's the same thing that's being taught here to us is that we are to move on to the next step. To leave Elementary school. And what are those foundation doctrines? One, repentance and faith. We see that. There's actually six different terms, but you can see them in three different groups. The first is repentance and faith. That you don't lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works in a faith toward God. This is the basics of the gospel. Now, it's saying that not to walk away from the gospel. But not to be just stuck at this place where there's this initial understanding of repentance and faith in God. It's to further in that repentance and faith to bring it to the next level. You're still going to carry the gospel with you in these doctrines. In fact, you cannot abandon them. And whenever you do abandon these elementary principles, it's like trying to do calculus and not having one, an understanding of one plus one equals two. I've, I've never studied calculus, so I'm not really sure if that's even applicable. Do you use basic math in that calculus? I'm, I, never, I never took calculus. I would assume it's still principally there, right? There would be an unraveling of a foundational understanding if we didn't have the basics of math. And then two, this one's a little bit more difficult. It's talking about the washings and laying on of hands. Now, there's actually two different views here about what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You have one view that this is a um, highlighting of the priestly work of washing and the laying on of hands concerning the, the sacrifice that this is kind of, in the context of where we're at in understanding the high priest, that this is a reference toward the basics of what would have been the, the Old Covenant understandings of washing and laying on of hands. The other view of this is that this is the same kind of language, similar language, of understanding the basics of baptism in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to admit, the commentaries that I have, they're divided. I do lean toward what I read from John Owen, is that the simplicity of what this passage is saying leans toward more about talking about baptism in the gift of the Holy Spirit, more more so than a reference toward the high priestly work. It does fit the immediate context a little more, even though I understand the other view of the broader context, that you have repentance and faith, You have baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, you see here in this next section about the resurrection and eternal judgment, which is the great hope of what is in the gospel of our resurrection and that Jesus is going to return. and There is an eternal judgment, both of hell and the great white throne of judgment as well. These are basics. And if you look at our confessions of faith, these kind of match what you see in the basics of our confession of faith, that these are the elementary foundations. That's why I kind of lean with John Owen here versus maybe the others that may be pointing more to the works of the high priest. You can you know, debate that if you'd like. But the basics understanding here is that it's time to move on. It's time to grow further. And he says here, the writer says that if God permits, we will do this. If God permits... We will be able to graduate. But then this is where most people get their most focus here. It says, and we will do this if God permits for in verse four of chapter six, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a tricky part. Now I want us to continue to remember the whole context of this passage here. The context is, is that it is time to move on to the next step. Now, I think it's very important for us to look at this word, for it is impossible. Now, I'm not saying that we should understand this particular passage just in light of my analogy of elementary school, but if you think about it, it's impossible to stay in elementary school forever. Now, granted, I know when I was in elementary school and in middle school and in high school, there were some guys that looked pretty old in there. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, was, I don't know if I was talking, who I was talking to recently, but I remember there were guys in high school that looked like they should be you know, in their 30s. <laughs> they look pretty old. Like, you. you've you been here for a long time. And you all, well, for those of you who may have gone to public or to any kind of private school where there were other ages of people who were being held back, you sometimes could tell that there were some that were just, They've been there for a while, but those people are still not in there. It's impossible to stay in elementary school. Eventually, two things are going to happen. Either you're going to drop out or someone's going to push you along, or third thing, you actually do your work and you get on to the next particular level. I believe that the context of this particular passage, though the more popular understanding of this particular passage is not unapplicable or non-applicable in this situation, but this has more to do that it is impossible, and I think based upon the foundations, and I'll go back and reinforce this argument, it is impossible for someone to be a Christian to have been truly enlightened and have the fullness of the heavenly gift and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and for them to fall away into a place of eternal destruction. It is impossible for people to be stuck in this place where there is no growth because the whole purpose of God's work is to bring this furthering into perfection of God's people. It is impossible. Now, granted, you can read this also that there are those who receive this common goodness that comes from the experience of the truth that comes from God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit impacting the things in their life and them also not being Christian. So there are different ways. There's I know there's only one right way. I know that with certainty. But it doesn't negate or take away from the passage if you haven't gotten this perfectly figured out. Maybe because we're so stuck on milk we haven't been able to fully grasp onto this. But I believe the context here is for us to be encouraged that it is impossible to be a Christian and to lose your salvation. But it is also impossible for you to be a faux Christian or to be an elementary school Christian forever. That there's something has to break, something has to give. And you can't just go back. I think the primary thing is that you cannot go back. It's kind of you know, you can't go back to as it was when you were not a Christian. You ever have you ever play around with the whole idea, you know, here people I had people at work even asked me this, like, what would you do if you could go back and be a child but know everything you know now? You ever thought about that or ever been in a conversation where you contemplate that? Like, go back when I was just three years old or four years old or whenever you first came to be able to have a consciousness of understanding of what's going on or a memory of when you were what was going on, but to retain all of the wisdom and understanding that you have And then, you know, you'd be able to be this kind of, you'd have this superpower, right? You'd know all this stuff. But you'd like, you'd be a child and everybody would be really, you know, like, wow, this guy knows everything. He'd be really smart. Well, we know that's impossible. You can't go back to that place. And you can't go back to a place where it's all starting over again. You, you don't need to continue to have these elementary doctrines be your primary source of your food, because once you become a Christian, when you begin to understand the basics of that, you build off of that. You're not just at a place where you're needing to have a revival moment ever and over and over again. That's not to say that we're not to be refreshed by the basic elementaries of Christ. There are plenty of refreshments, and there are those revival moments where we are maybe having a dull moment and we're being refreshed. But it's not like we can never go back to as if we did not know God and to know him. We cannot go back to when we were unconscious and then become conscious again to the point of all newness. That it's an impossibility. It's kind of like any kind of other relationship. You can't do that in childhood. You can't do that in marriage. You know, some people are like, you know, what would it be like to, to have that same experience of falling in love for the first time? It's like, well, you can't go back to that. Now, you can build off of that. You can have some great joy and refreshment, but it's always going to be building off of those basics. You can't come back from the beginning. or And not to... to um, Demean the gospel and to the parallel of understanding buying a new car. It's like when you get a new car, you, know, you can take it and get it detailed and everything after it's 10 or 15 years old, but you're not going to have the same new car again. <laughs> you can't go back. If there's no way. It's an impossibility. But there's an encouragement here that when it comes to salvation, that we have a security There is we have it plenty, and and it's important for us to be reminded of that context so that we can understand what's not being said here. Whichever way you may go in trying to understand this passage, you cannot lose your salvation. Hebrews even says, "For the Christian will be secure in Christ." For we have come. Sorry, that wasn't a quote. It was my note. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence. Confidence firm to the end. You know, we, we can have this hope holding on to Christ. We're not going to lose it. John ten twenty seven through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Romans 8:28 through 30 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a very definite thing that God has predestined, that those whom he called are going to be his. He's not going to lose anyone. No one is greater than him, and they will no one will snatch his people, his children, out of, their hand, out of his hands. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a really good passage to understand in this particular context is that we are being encouraged here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There should be this admonishment that has the fruit of fear and trembling. But for us to understand that it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, there's also this encouragement of this assurance of hope. But this salvation is being worked out in us by bearing fruit, by moving on from elementary school, and graduating to the next class level of understanding the wonders of Jesus Christ. So what kind of disciple are you? Or what kind of disciple are you not? Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And I lost the reference there. I don't know where that came from, but it's in the Bible. I deleted it by accident and didn't post it back. There has to be a fruit. There should be a fruitful disciple. And it's interesting here as he goes on. So now he's he's explained this that it's impossible, and you can look at it either way, that you can be in a place where you could be just doing the motions and you know, and then eventually you're not going to be truly his. We'll see, we see that also that Jesus himself says. That many, I'll read this out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. It says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your names and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is possible that you can be in a place where there's even prophetic involvement and casting out of demons, but because you did not know God, he did not know you. Even if you experienced the goodness of, of the word of God and the works of God. So yes, it is applicable there as well, but the long and the short of it is that those whom God has predestined and called will bear fruit. And we are called with an instruction for us to be doing the work of obedience and to be working out that salvation by one, growing in our understanding of the word, diligently praying, being involved in teaching others, expecting miracles of God's promises to occur, and to also to embrace that suffering. You see where this is going, that we should be living this out. So the question is, what keeps you from moving on? Well, we have here in verse 9 where the tenor changes, and it's a very interesting play of words. And you may do this kind of thing when you're admonishing your own family or other people in your life, you kind of go in strong, and then you go with some encouragement. You're not going to be left with just this kind of punch in the face. You're a bunch of dull, slow, slothful Christians. So says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Now, we know that he's not just ranting here for another group of people. That this admonishment is also for them, but he's also wanting to reinforce that he does know them and this is for a particular group of people, doesn't necessarily mean that this is perfectly applicable for us because it may be, we, may, we may not be amongst that title of beloved. We may be at that place where we are brand new and need to come to our first understanding of repentance and faith. But here he's speaking to them and says, now we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, sure, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's coming back and he's throwing in this encouragement. Now, somewhere in here, there's this this challenge that we have to evaluate ourselves in light of what we believe and what we are doing. Of whether or not the Lord is bearing fruit in our lives. Are we stuck at verse 8 where it says, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed and in its end to be burned. Is it not? Is the only thing that's being produced here is thorns and thistles? Now, you might be in a place in your life where Satan is actually tempting you to think that everything that you see in your life is nothing but thorns and thistles. And this is where the body of Christ is really important for people to come around you and point to you in the scriptures and to maybe give you a a right evaluation of your understanding. I do fear that today in our modern church today that there are a lot of people sitting in the church that are not Christians. Their fruit is absent and there's going to be a a rude awakening very much like what Jesus said there in Matthew 7. And so we need to be very careful not to give people a false hope just so there's some kind of nicety. And this is where we have to get real with one another only God's going to ultimately know some. In these cases, only God's going to know for. And in many of these cases, where only, only God's going to know, but we need to be able to at least encourage one another to understand. Do you believe this kind of things? Well, yes, I believe this all of my life. And and maybe you won't be able to give a perfect kind of counsel to someone and say, "Well, it does seem that you are bearing fruit." Here, Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is actually saying, "I, I feel." I feel different for you all. I see that there is fruit in your life, that God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. It is important for us to be walking together in that. There are going to be times in our life where Satan's going to say, well, look at all the things that you've done. Just like the one who's speaking to Jesus and says, I prophesied in your name. I did all these great wonders in your name, Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, I didn't know you. And then there's going to be the other people where there has been this slow growth and it's been a challenging faith walk. And Satan's going to say, look, you're worthless. You haven't, there's no fruit in your life. You're doomed. You might as well just go ahead and live like hell. Because there's nothing there, and he's going to do that to be a stumbling block to one who is in the faith, who does need to continue to be on milk for a season in their life, so they can grow into greater maturity. We need to come around both of these people and to admonish in truth and love, brother or no, brother or sister or friend, you don't seem to have any sharing any, showing any fruit in your life. You know, especially these people maybe who are living continually in their sin. You know when we, And this is why it's important for us when people are embracing a lifestyle of sin and they say, well, I still believe in Jesus. I'm still going to go to church. I, mean, I know people who are pursuing an unjust divorce in their marriage that still put posts on their Facebook about how they love Jesus, but they have no right to be divorcing. That's someone that should be in a very highly concerned place. They're very openly and very actively Going against god's word that person should be doesn't say that you can know with certainty this person isn't a believer you can say you're, this is something you should be very concerned about if you continue in this path in unrepentance whether or not you should be considering yourself a christian and that's why we're instructed in the bible for us to separate ourselves from people who will not repent of sin not to give them the false hope because we want them to repent And we want them to go back to the milk and start from the beginning, go back to elementary school and become a Christian and live out in faithfulness. But then there are other people who are struggling, who are weak, and this is why the church is so important. That we need to come around and say, yes, we know you're having a hard time. I've had this hard time too. Don't listen to Satan. I can see the fruit in your life. I can see, based upon your confession of faith, you need to be encouraged to continue on to continue to walk in faithfulness, to grow, and to mature in faith. And ultimately, that's what this passage is about, is to encourage a certain group of hearers here. And we kind of see this distinction here because we see him say, and we desire each one of you, this is in verse 11, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're left with this encouragement that I feel good and assured that there are better things for you, that salvation belongs to you. But at the same time, we desire that each of you to become more earnest, to become less sluggish, (laughs) to abandon sluggishness in elementary school activity, and to move on to a full assurance of hope by being imitators of those who through faith and patience will truly inherit the promises of God. To show this earnestness. And you will see it in the fruit of work and love. Sometimes that fruit is just a little bit of fruit. And sometimes there's grapefruit. Not grapefruit. Don't misunderstand what I said there. It's not grapefruit. What did he just say? <laughs> there's little fruit and grapefruit. Grapefruit. But we need to be encouraging one another in this, but all of us should receive the admonishment not to be sluggish, not to feel confident that we're okay with just being in elementary school, that we should be imitators primarily of Jesus Christ. And we see him in the work, and we talked about this last Sunday, in the work that he did as a high, great high priest, that he served his father in obedience. To obey God and what he has called. That he endured suffering. That he stayed committed to the word. He He stayed committed to prayer. He definitely was all about the work of growing the disciples of the kingdom. He performed the miracles and fulfilled the miracles. He anticipated that the miracles would occur. And he thanked the father for making it so. While bringing people and drawing people to himself but he also embraced suffering for us. We should be taking on those same characteristics because Jesus Christ did that as the great high priest and because we also have other saints before us. Here in the book of Hebrews, we see the highlighting of the great high priest being the primary example in the fulfillment of that particular work, but then how that was manifested through other fathers and sisters, mothers of the faith. Because it is all about promise, this eternal promise from this eternal order of Melchizedek and the priestly work that is eternal, that we should be convicted by this passage to wake up, but we should be assured when we see and expect and anticipate and celebrate the fruit that the Lord is bearing in us. I know we can talk more about this, and if you have more questions about this, I look forward to having conversation. But I pray that you will be encouraged by this passage to press on and to graduate that day when we receive the full promise of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Let us pray, our heavenly Father, we. Thank you.